Welcome to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I like scary movies. Tonight, in a super special episode of the show, we'll be taking a look back at another hidden gem of Canadian slasher cinema, Curtains, from 1983. Have you ever wanted something so badly you would do anything for it? Well, me, I want to be an actress. Then we'll be joined by the one, the only, Mr. Paul Zaza, who composed the incredible score for the film, among so many others. I'll I'll give him a much more proper introduction before we get him in here. Curtains had a complicated journey from concept to screen, and I'm thrilled to be talking with Paul about the production, as well as his experiences working on so many of the films that we love and talk about often here. I have to admit, you guys know me, okay? I, well, I mean, you might not know me, you you may be new here, but if you've been with me for a while, you know... I try to live to a certain standard of decorum here on the show. However, Paul is my favorite film composer. I would love to hear what Paul Zaza might have done with this score, but that's not, he can't score every movie, Molly, I know. I got a little starstruck when I was talking with him. Just, there's no masking it. Brace yourself. I sound like a babbling moron. Thankfully, Paul is all class, all grace. He handled my hero worship beautifully. And uh, I'm just so excited to share this conversation, his stories, and his insights with you guys. Before we dive into that discussion, though, we'll take a quick look at the film's story, production, and reception. There are no points of interest tonight. I'd really like to devote as much time as possible to the conversation with Paul. Although, if we were doing points of interest, I would recommend uh, heading over to Fright Rags and checking out their new Evil Dead-inspired Deadstream t-shirt because it's the best shirt I've seen all year. But we're not doing that. We're not doing points of interest. We're not wasting any time tonight. So without any ado whatsoever, it's time to dive into the movie. If you are new to the podcast and you don't hate it, stay tuned until the end of this episode for information on Final Girl Friday elsewhere. And as usual, if you haven't seen Curtains from 1983, proceed with caution because I'm about to spoil the entire film for you. Let's talk about Curtains. Directed by Richard Shupka and Peter Simpson, though the film would have you believe it was directed by Jonathan Stryker, which is the name of one of its main characters, it stars Samantha Egar, John Vernon, Lynn Griffin, and an inhumanly attractive yet weirdly silent Michael Wincott in one of his first film roles. The screenplay was written by Robert Guza Jr., who was also credited as coming up with the original story for Prom Night. Curtains shares a handful of familiar names with the Prom Night franchise. Peter Simpson, who produced Prom Nights 1 through 4, Paul Zaza, who did the music for them. It's a different beast from Prom Night, however, as it, among other things, deviates quite a bit from the traditional slasher formula, with more of an ensemble cast, multiple killers, older characters, and heavier themes. I had myself committed to learn what Audra knew. What did you find out? That an actress must always be in control. 
The film opens with seasoned actress Samantha Sherwood committing herself to an asylum for research for the lead role in a film called Audra, directed by a rather smarmy man named Jonathan Stryker. Right away, you get the impression that Sherwood lives in Stryker's pocket. You know, she's talented and famous, and there's a lot of work history between them, as well as implied romantic and sexual history. And she's committing herself because she believes the role of Audra is hers, and Stryker seems to be encouraging that. But once she's in the asylum, the experience starts to kind of wear her down. She starts losing her mind a little bit, and Stryker abandons her there, opting instead to hold this mass audition for Audra at his mansion, way out in the wintry Canadian wilderness. Six young actresses convene at the mansion to compete for the role in a variety of ways, many of which are not quite above board. But when Samantha shows up unexpectedly to join the competition, the tension in the house rises and inevitably, people start dying at the hands of a killer donning the mask of a decrepit old woman. At the same time that the guests are being plucked off one by one, Sherwood discovers Stryker in bed with Brooke, one of the other actresses, after which she snaps and kills them both. Audra could never pull the trigger. A woman discovering her lover in bed with someone else? You don't know much about women. Or love. In the end, all that's left are Sherwood and a headstrong comedian named Patty, who seemed to be at the bottom of the running throughout the audition process. During an exhausted and intimate conversation in the kitchen, Patty reveals that she killed all the other girls to get the role, then stabbed Sherwood. The film ends with Patty performing a stand-up routine, mirroring the introduction of her character to an audience of inmates at an asylum. Much like Dead and Buried, the curtains we've all seen is very different from the curtains they set out to make. They started principal photography for the film in November of 1980, just four months after the release of Prom Night. And Peter Simpson wanted to keep that momentum going after the success of that film, hoping to create another slasher movie aimed at an older audience. But Richard Shupka wanted to make something a little more artful, prioritizing style over accessibility and efficiency. He was behind schedule pretty much from the beginning, which ultimately led to him leaving the project and the film was shelved for over a year. Things were rewritten, reshot. Uh, one of the actresses, Celine Lomez, who originally played Brooke was recast, and Simpson took over directing. So the film is actually two films kind of smooshed together. And at times, it does feel a little schizophrenic. Like, there's a kind of sea story with a creepy doll that goes absolutely nowhere. A couple of the deaths sort of defy reason. And, and then you have Michael Wincott there... But he has no lines, which was absolutely not the intention. You, you don't cast Michael Wincott and then not let him speak, you know? But even with all that, what you end up with is a fascinating fusion of arthouse thriller and formulaic slasher with haunting camera work and a badass spastic killer. It's a true testament to the talents of, I mean, I mean, everyone involved, but especially editors Michael McLaverty and Henry Richardson, as well as composer Paul Zaza. These guys did such an incredible job weaving everything together into a cohesive story that is disturbing and funny and, at times, surprisingly profound. Zaza's score is definitely one of the film's greatest strengths. His music is not only fucking fantastic in the film, but it carries you from scene to scene effortlessly. It creates these connecting threads that without them, 
we as an audience may have been left feeling a little lost from time to time. And I'm not just saying that because he's going to be on the show tonight. The score is my favorite thing about Curtains, followed closely by the killer, or I should say the main killer, the sickle-wielding masked maniac who is clearly female most if not all of the time. If they did put a petite man in the costume to mess with the audience, I never noticed it, and I really appreciate that. But she's just she's just such a fun killer. She's creative, agile, and the mask she wears is really, it's unsettling. It has a lot more personality than some of the other masks we've seen in the slashers of this decade. And the meaning behind it, when we think that the main killer is Sherwood, kind of kind of past her prime by Hollywood standards, competing against younger women, running around in a mask that looks like an old crone. God, I, I love that. Of course, the mask takes on a different meaning when you realize the killer is actually one of the younger actresses, but still, there's a poignancy that I really appreciate. And that's one of the other things I like most about Curtains. It's just there's so much happening in this story. You you get this intimate look at one of the more demoralizing aspects of the film industry, the social politics, the plight of the struggling actor, what it's like to be a woman in a predominantly man's world, the lengths each of us may be willing to go to to get what we want. It explores all of this, while at the same time, maintaining Maintaining a kind of poetry in the process. It doesn't feel heavy-handed in its commentary, despite the fact that the commentary is everywhere. And it's a kind of timeless exploration of these themes when you watch it today. The movie has aged beautifully. I mean, God damn it! you haven't spent five minutes with me and now you're telling me I'm wrong for the part. Why? Because I haven't got a staple through my navel like that centerfold? Because I wouldn't pirouette into bed with you and skate on your face? I mean, what the hell are you looking for anyway? I also adore the cast. All these women, they're versatile and so much fun to watch. Each of the characters has a distinct personality, their own methods. Their end goal is the same, but their motivations are different. You've got a comedian, a ballet dancer, a professional ice skater. And you also just have several faces from within the Canadian horror family, like Lynn Griffin and Sandy Curry, who appeared in Black Christmas and Terror Train, respectively. They all did just wonderful jobs with their roles, and I feel for each and every one of these ladies, in part because there's a sense of camaraderie between them, despite the awkward and frankly debasing situation in which they find themselves, and that is a decidedly Canadian thing. This is why I love Canadian horror films, man. No matter what situation you put a large group of people into, those people are going to find a way to get along. And it's true even here, when these women are being deliberately pitted against each other and manipulated, they still somehow manage to get along with one another. John Vernon Stryker is such a convincing sleaze. He throws his weight around perfectly. I just, I, I, didn't, I didn't have to suspend my disbelief too far. He feels disgustingly realistic. Samantha Agar's Sherwood is just, God, she just guts me. I get strong Norma Desmond vibes from Sherwood. It's, it's a melancholy kind of crazy, you know? There's one scene in particular where she sort of crashes one of the audition sessions and Stryker humiliates her by forcing her to put on this decrepit, aged old woman mask and tells her to seduce him in front of the other girls. Egger's performance during that scene, it carries so much weight. And then Lynn Griffin is so entertaining throughout this. She just takes you on a roller coaster in, in the best sense. And, and Patty is my favorite character in the film. When she calls Stryker out for exploiting the girls and we get to see that edge, that darkness that Patty has within her, it's just, it's great. As for the kills, they're pretty standard fare for the era. Nothing particularly memorable for me about the practical effects or the deaths, but the tension building to the kills is a band apart. Kudos 
to the DP, Robert Paintner. It's that unintended fusion of art house thriller with commercial slasher that creates just these very unique, tense scenes. Like the Lorianne death scene in the dance studio really stands out to me, where we're just sort of focusing on her as she's dancing and the camera slowly zooms in closer and closer until all that's in frame is her face as she, and, and right in that moment, she's killed. And then, of course, you have the infamous skate for your life scene where you've got the killer skating up on Christy with her sickle in slow motion and then she stalks Christy through the woods. It's so much fun. And it brings me to my new favorite segment, which I've only actually gotten to do once this year. It's time for the decap recap. One and a half characters were decapitated in curtains, Christy and the Doll, which, by the way, is the title of the fifth track on the original film soundtrack. As I mentioned, there is a doll in this movie, uh, an unhappy looking little doll that just sort of shows up as a death omen for a couple of the girls. That doll's arm is sticking up out of the snow as Christy is skating around. And as she's running from the killer, the killer lashes out at her with the sickle and decapitates the doll. And we get a really nice slow motion shot of the doll's head rolling in the snow. For the doll decap, I I think I'm going to give it a five out of five. I, I just can't think of a better way to decapitate a doll. Then a few minutes later, Christy is cornered up against a tree. The killer is behind her and kind of lifts her head up. We don't actually see her head detach at that time. We just hear the sickle cutting through her flesh. But later, Brooke discovers Christy's head in her toilet. Uh, So again, five out of five. My instinct was to deduct points because we don't actually see the decap happen initially. But the way that scene was shot, the implication, and then the reveal, it just definitely the most memorable death in the movie. So five out of five skulls all around for Christy and the doll. Curtains was shot on a budget of approximately $4 million and was released to abysmal reviews. It seemed destined to fall into the ether. But over time, as most things do, it found its audience. And then a Blu-ray release in 2014 brought in a new wave of cult followers. And gradually, people are coming around to what a gem it truly is. Over at Wicked Horror, Tyler Dupay wrote, this film is a must-watch for horror fans. Its creativity and clever camera work alone make it worth the watch. And of the timelessness of one of the film's messages, C.H. Newell of Father, Son, Holy Gore wrote, If you allow it, the plots reveal themes worth mulling over. It does a fantastic job on all fronts, which is why this is an unforgettable horror movie. And in the wake of all the abuses we've seen over the past few years in Hollywood, the themes in Curtains resonate across decades. (laughs) What would you do for it? I don't know, uh... Tell a few jokes, do a little song and dance, sell my mother into slavery. (laughs) There is so much more that I would love to unpack here. Curtains is one of those films that every time I revisit it, I find a handful of things that I, I didn't notice or I hadn't thought about before. There are layers that I just keep unpeeling every time I go back. It's thought provoking and fun, entertaining, unnerving. And that accidental marriage of two distinct horror subgenres, it just, it works so fucking well. And I'm so sorry that this is a, a somewhat shorter dive than I normally do. It's just I'm, I'm really excited to talk to Paul and hear what he has to say about it. So with that, we'll take a short break and then we'll get him in here. Stop! Leave! Why are you doing this? Why are you trying to kill me? Hold on. I am so glad that you asked. I'm trying to kill you because I love your podcast, but it takes you weeks, 
sometimes months to upload new content. Wait, really? You like the show? Yeah. But if you kill me, I won't be able to post anything at all. Don't do that. Just pledge to my Patreon. You have a Patreon? Yeah, I do. Well, I kind of sank all my money into this whole murder plan, so... Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Masks aren't cheap. The, the lowest tier is only a dollar. Well, that's a pretty sweet deal. Right? And, and, uh, and the more patrons I have, the more freedom I'll have to focus on creating new episodes of Final Girl Friday. Which means more regular uploads. Yes! See, you don't need to kill me. Just go to patreon.com slash finalgirlfriday. Okay, but we came all the way out here, and I have put a lot of work into this, so I'm still going to kill you. Uh, are you freaking kidding me? I'll be sure to check out the Patreon once you're dead. Oh, that makes no sense. Okay, well, he's a man who needs no introduction here at Final Girl Friday, but we're going to give him one anyway. He's an award-winning film composer and songwriter. He trained as a classical pianist at the Royal Conservatory of Music in Toronto, Canada. He's got about 100 film credits to his name, including Prom Night, My Bloody Valentine, Popcorn, Murder by Decree, a little film nobody's ever heard of called A Christmas Story, and of course, Curtains, the film we're talking about tonight. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Paul Zaza. Hey, Paul. Hi. How's it going? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Pretty good. Well, I really appreciate you taking some time out of your data to talk with me. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, my pleasure. My pleasure. I hope I can... Uh... I can help here. Yeah, well, I know, you know, not to just jump right into the topic at hand, but I just, I, I know that Curtains was kind of a, a fraught production. Yeah. And so I, I hope that I, yeah. I, I hope it's not difficult to talk about. Just putting it mildly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Basically, this is going way back. There, there were three pictures that were being sort of done almost uh, at the same time. It was a three picture deal for a company called Simcom. And the three pictures were Prom Night, Melanie, which nobody has ever heard of, <laughs> and Curtains. These movies were kind of all done as a tax shelter deal up in Canada, which is, was very common in the 80s. Curtains was, it was the third one of this, uh, of this trio of films. First we shot Prom Night and, you know, it, it was being edited, and then they started shooting Melanie and uh, had a lot of problems with that. And by the time they got to Curtains, they really didn't know what the hell they were doing. The script was being rewritten while the cameras were rolling. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, if you know anything about movies, you know that that's never a recipe for a successful film. So anyway, you know, we'd go and look at the dailies, you know, and see the footage and the editor would try and glue it together and make some kind of a film out of it. But most of the time we, we were in the in the screening room looking at it saying, this movie doesn't make any sense. Like none of this makes sense. As a matter of fact, it still doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember that the producer, Peter Simpson, is a real character. He was sitting there and watching the film for about an hour and a half. And then he just stood up and said, this is this is half of a film. We've got half of a film here. So what are we going to do with half a film? It's like having half of a car. What do you do with half a car? Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. So he was pretty upset, and he sent the writers and the editors and everybody back to say, "Look, you gotta you gotta come up with something here because this doesn't this doesn't work, and I I can't 
I can't sell this. I can't deliver this. There's no movie here. It's just a bunch of shots of things that don't connect and make any, you know, there's no plot. There's nothing here. So they, they took about six months off. And I remember because I knew I had to finish this. I had to score it, but they couldn't give me a film in one piece to score. So I went off and did other things. I was doing other movies. I sort of rewrote this off and said, this isn't going to end well. There's just too much chaos here. And, you know, it was all put together just for the sake of honoring that tax shelter. And that was really the, that was the biggest concern is that we, 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 we get all the paperwork done and the lawyers and everybody gets, gets their tax write off and everything. And then we'll worry about it. You know, if there's any time left, we'll make a movie. So that's, that's the reason why it was, what was your word? Fraught with problems? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little, a little fraught. I have to say it's so interesting to me because like listening to your music for the film, it's so cohesive. It's such a cohesive score that tells, you know, just this very fluid story from start to finish. So it's so funny to me that, uh, the film itself sort of seems to make no sense because I feel like your music sort of makes it make sense. <laughs> well, well, that was the challenge. And, you know, when I finally looked at when they handed it over to me, I said, well, we've got to, we've got to do something here because this is not really, it doesn't play. I mean, the movie doesn't play. Maybe with the right music and sound on it, it'll kind of go in some direction that, that you can stay with. Now, you know, having said all of this, the film, if we just fast forward to where we are today, this film is this seems to have this cult following. Oh yeah! And <laughs> as a matter of fact, it, it's so much so that I, it's funny that we're talking about curtains because I just got in my well, not in the mail. They shipped it. Um, we did a soundtrack album with one of the bigger soundtrack labels called Waxworks. They sent me the curtains vinyl, which is a beautiful. I'm looking at it right now, and uh, they are beautiful. And it's funny because I was talking to. Uh, to the guy who runs it down there, Kevin, and he was saying, "Oh, you, should, you know, we're getting a lot of advance orders on this thing. It's yeah. it's kind of jumping off the shelf." <laughs> and I thought, I thought, "Wow, that's that's really amazing for a film that really <laughs> I, I didn't expect anything to become of this." Movies like Prom Night and well, see, Prom Night again, not not to dive, you know, we're we're kind of going in another oh, direction. Oh, no, please. Here. Please go in any direction you want. <laughs> prom, well, prom Night was the same producer, as I just told you at the beginning of this. It was part of the three-picture deal. Now, Prom Night was equally disjointed, and it maybe even more so, because it was the first one that they shot. Mm -hmm. And, it, I mean, it, it was, again, uh, a situation where the movie really, they had no business putting the film in the camera and shooting it, because... <laughs> The script had so many problems and none of it made sense. Mm. All they knew is we can get into this old high school and shoot this thing, which is a great backdrop for a movie because you got all these dark corridors and you can have killers running around and make, you know, it's all good stuff. Then we've got Jamie Lee Curtis signed and Leslie Nielsen signed and uh, we put all the numbers together and everybody's excited. Okay. The only thing we don't have is a script. <laughs> yeah. We we don't know what this movie's about. We just know that there's a killer in a high school. And when they started shooting this, again, the same situation, we got into the cutting room and we were looking at it and everybody stood up and said, well, you know, there's some nice pictures here, but what's the point? What's the story? And then they, again, they, they sort of broke down for a couple of months and we all just decided, oh, I don't know, this thing's a mess. And it was actually my partner on this one 
Charles at Traer, who came up with some brilliant ideas. He said, you know what? Okay, we're out of time, we're out of money, but, but this isn't working. Why don't we shoot some close-ups of a telephone wire, pan up, and then put some sound on with some killer whispering, Kelly, Kelly, I'm coming for you. You know, he says, it costs nothing, and you can shoot this for nothing, and you can insert this anytime we need a motivation for a killing. And then the other thing that saved the day, which was my idea, I said, look, this is happening in a gymnasium where the big rage back then was disco. Why don't we have these kids dancing to a disco and we'll I'll put some disco tunes on there. And uh, if nothing else, at least we've got good music. You know? <laughs> and again, for such a mess, the film ends up becoming kind of a cult classic. Yeah. I was listening to the uh, the Royal Canadian podcast recently where you were on talking about noticing these films, you know, kind of gaining these cult followings. And I, I'm, I'm a member of, of that cult. You know, I absolutely adore Prom Night. I love Curtains. I think they're fantastic films. But I just can imagine how surreal that must be. I mean, have you found that the rising popularity of some of these movies, has it endeared the process to you in any way? Well, my memory of how they were made and how you know, chaotic everything was. You can't, I can't get rid of that. <laughs> yeah. Another one, like My Bloody Valentine, it just had, because it was Valentine's Day just, you know, mm-hmm. recently. They had a big reunion up in Toronto for uh, the My Bloody Valentine cast. And of course, I, I, I couldn't attend. I'm in Florida. But um, there's another one that was just thrown together they sent a bunch of kids down and a director down to a mine in sydney nova scotia and said okay it doesn't matter as long as there's a killer and somebody's getting an ice pick through their forehead and something <laughs> we don't care just make a movie go go down there and shoot a bunch of stuff and make it scary and 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 don't go over budget and, and don't go over time right. you know which they did they, they went down and they brought it back and it was you know it was what it was but again, these 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 kind of genre films that that I did at the time, I had no idea that they were going to become uh, as successful as they've proven to be. Right, of course. Yeah. I've been to the comic cons and the horror rama, all kinds of these conventions that that you know I've been to them because they asked me to come down and sign pictures and uh, you know speak, mm-hmm. uh, do their little Q and As. So when I go there and I see just how loyal and how dedicated the fan base is, not just for the films that I've done, but for all the films, the Friday the 13th and all the stuff that's out there. I think, my God, what an incredibly loyal, devoted group of people these are. It's true. Way way more. And they're buying stuff. They seem to have lots of money. They're buying, (laughs) you know, pictures and posters and uh, all kinds of stuff. I mean, there's way more loyalty and, and devotion to that than I've seen in any other uh, genre. Oh, yeah. You're hard-pressed to find anyone more passionate than horror fans. Yeah, it's true. Exactly, exactly. The fan favorite track from the Curtain score is uh, Skate for Your Life. Right. Is there a piece in, in the Curtain score that you are particularly proud of? Well, you know, I mean, on a positive note, some of the visuals were, were pretty interesting. And, you know, like shots of that doll, and the, the killer, the, the skater, right, on the ice rink, that whole sequence. Yeah. There's something about it that's just very uh, unique and very ethereal and, and interesting. So having looked at those visuals, I, I thought, 
well, let's come up with some music that is equally ethereal and interesting, not knowing really how it was all, you know, as a composer, what you try to do is you try to tie the whole score together so that there's some cohesiveness between the cues. So it doesn't sound like, you know, you've got a comedy cue and then you've got a horror cue, then you've got a children's cue, and then you've got a, you know, all, all these love themes and stuff that chase cues and stuff that does, it doesn't really connect. It's just a bunch of isolated pieces of music that satisfies the scene at the moment that you're working on. And then, of course, you have a running theme that repeats itself, like a motif, right? Mm-hmm. So I didn't really have any of that going for me because all I had were, were visuals that were very segmented. So they had to kind of be the inspiration, I thought, like that doll, you know, that doll. I don't know where they found that creepy looking doll, but that but it I mean that doll is so creepy and eerie when you look at it you kind of it's it's unsettling like, mm. who would make a doll that looks like that <laughs> yeah. again the doll had nothing to do with the script yeah it really yeah, doesn't nobody, nobody knows why that doll was there it was just there it is stick it in it looks creepy let's use it put it in there's a particular cue, a particular piece in the score called the voices yes. in the snow yes it's one of my favorites but I'm not a musician right? I'm just an avid fan of film music. So I don't have the, the sharpest ear for instruments. And I know that you're you're known for fusing together that sort of old Hollywood classic orchestral sound with more modern like, synthesizers. And, and, and uh, I cannot tell how you how you did the, the sort of voices, the choir sound on Voices in the Snow. And I think they come back again in Echoes. It's such a beautiful sound. It's so haunting. How did you, what did you do? What's the, what was the process there? Since we didn't have a choir, nor could we afford one, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I brought a singer in, a female singer in who I have used. And the other thing I must point out, I'm not sure if you are aware, I, I owned, in fact, I still do a studio, a recording studio in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is where all these music scores were made. Being a studio owner and and basically spending most of my life in a studio, I had access to, you know, recording consoles, tape machines, boards, electronic equipment, as much as there were at the time. I mean, it wasn't like today where you've got computers and every MacBook uh, Pro is, is a full studio now. So, you know, we didn't have all that. But what I did was I took this girl and I had her sing a tone, just a a whole long tone and recorded it on one track. Then I had her record another tone, two semitones higher or one whole tone higher on an adjacent track. Then I had her go back and on a third adjacent track, sing another tone, one higher and then on and on and on like that. So what what happened was that with the end, if you played all those tracks together with every tone, one tone apart, you had basically this wall of, and it wasn't harmonious because it wasn't a proper harmony. It was just like a, it's almost like, think of it as a piano, right? Mm-hmm. Every key on the piano was laid out on the console, the board. So if I raised one fader, I might get an E flat. If I raised the fader beside it, I'd get an F. And then the fader beside that would give me a G. So I could play, pardon the crudeness of this, but I could play her on the console. Once she went home and her voice was there, I could play her voice like a piano. So by raising certain tones in and out and having them swim an echo, you know, there was 
drenched in echo. And then we did some interesting things like play them backwards and, you know, all kinds of stuff. But I, I ended up with like 12 tracks of this girl's voice, all singing a different tone and manipulating them with the, the faders on the board. So that's how we came up with Voices in the Snow. That's fantastic. Well, it worked really well. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it worked. But you got to remember something too, Molly. We, you know, if you go back to that era in the 80s, we didn't have the kinds of samplers and sophisticated computer uh, programs that we have today. There was there was very little out there to choose from. There was a Moog synthesizer and a couple of uh, other brands, but there were no sampling keyboards. There was the technology hadn't come that far. It wasn't advanced enough back then. It was starting to get better, but there was nothing digital. Everything was analog. Mm-hmm. So really, we kind of had to put our thinking caps on and think, well, I gotta, I gotta think of a way to to do this sort of the hard way. <laughs> Today, it would be very, very easy to do that. Yeah. You know, you just plug in your computer and, and sit there and it, it would it would all happen. Uh, so we, we really, it was just being very resourceful and creative and trying to, trying to come up with some eerie stuff that was done a little differently. Because, you know, everybody was doing the old stuff, all the Friday the 13th and the Freddy crew, all that stuff. Everybody was doing the the horror thing, you know, leaning on the keyboard, making all these weird sounds. Um, (laughs) But I, you know, I learned a lot of this stuff from my friend Carl. When he did Black Christmas for Bob, this was before my time. He didn't have anything. He had no money. He had no, and he didn't even have the, you know, Carl be the first one to tell you, he doesn't have the skills to to score an orchestra like I did down in England with the London Philharmonic. He he didn't have those, uh, didn't have that training and those skills. So what he did was he he got into a studio and got a piano and dumped a bunch of nails into the piano. Yep. <laughs> nails, you know, like real nails, carpenter's nails. Yeah. And then he recorded them bouncing off the strings and he'd slow that down and play it backwards and put it in echo. And he created a lot of that score on Black Christmas with just silly things like that, like a piano or recording a a pipe, a water pipe with the set, with the water rushing through it and then slowing that down. All these these eerie effects that you had to do the hard way. So so I kind of learned a lot of these. Uh, I mean the 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 tone, what we call a tone row for the voices in the snow. That one I came up with on my own. But um, but you know you 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 put things together and you think of ways to to come up with sounds and. Uh, some of them work, some of them don't, you know? We, the audience, tend to romanticize it in retrospect. Um, like with My Bloody Valentine, I think I mentioned this to you when I first reached out to you. I mean, it's My Bloody Valentine is one of my absolute all-time favorite films, and the score for My Bloody Valentine is my favorite film score. Oh, wow. And <laughs> so it is hard to kind of divorce yourself from the kind of romantic nature of that when you're in it, in the throes of it at the time. Who could know? Well, well, the, and the, what amazes me, my bloody Valentine it was a whirlwind of, uh, of activity in very little time with very little money, but we had to come up with something and deliver the film to Paramount, right? This just had to be done because there was a contract. So, for example, we, we got to the very end credits, and I remember the producer and the director saying, well, we got to have some music here. They were trying to get some big hit record there was some big song that 
I forget who the heck had the hits out at the time. They wanted, they always want to put a big hit. Yeah. <laughs> either at the beginning or the end. Right. Well, the way the, the way the beginning, you know the movie, right? Uh, Molly, you know the movie. I do a little bit, yeah. <laughs> so you couldn't put a song at the beginning because it's all happening with uh, the horror and the darkness and everything. And so a song really wouldn't work. It's not like a James Bond movie where you can have Adele singing her latest hit. Yeah. So they had to, they had to have a song because that's what you do if you want to like a lot of money. You put a song in the movie and then you sell millions of copies of the soundtrack album. And then the soundtrack album sells millions of copies of the film and everybody gets rich and everybody's happy, right? So that's why you put a hit song. Yeah. But the problem was they couldn't get the rights to the song that was in there. So the producer called me up and he said, uh, look, we've got to have something on the end and, you know, we want a song and we've got to have it by Friday. <laughs> so I said, well, you know, what, what kind of a song? I mean, you, you just killed a bunch of people and you got this killer Harry Warden out there and you got all this stuff that just happened and this horrible stuff in this little town. And what do you want me to, you know, what do you want? Tiptoe through the tulips? You know, I mean, what are we, what are we going to put? Well, that's your problem. Come up with something. So I, I sat down and I thought, well, what about if we just retold the whole story in a sort of a, a ballad uh, or almost like a sea shanty kind of a thing, only we're going to do it um, telling the ballad, uh, telling the story of Harry Warden in this little town and how the townsfolk were all scared and how, you know, the town will never be the same and blah, blah, blah. I, I sat down and I just basically retold the whole story of the movie in this three-minute song, this ballad. Hmm. So I, I put the, I put the thing together. I got some kid in Toronto, John McDermott, who actually is now quite a big star down there. He's had platinum albums and he's ended up doing very well. But that nothing to do with the movie. He just he's, he's a good singer. Mm-hmm. So we put this thing on and and, and uh, everybody loved it. And everybody said, "Yeah, this is great. What a great way to end a movie. Nobody does that anymore. Tells the story of the movie. Usually, the song at the end has nothing to do with what the movie was about." Right. And I only did that because I couldn't think of anything else to do. (laughs) Which is so funny because, yeah, it works out really well. And it's just one of the one of the best moments, I think, in the movie is that that wrap up at the end. Yeah, it was it was really weird, too, because, I mean, again, I just threw it together. I didn't expect anybody. Oh, come on. Who's even in the theater when the closing credits are are rolling, (laughs) making their way to the parking lot? But so I guess about a couple of years ago, I got this call from. A friend, he's a director friend in LA of Quentin Tarantino. He said, well, you know, Quentin and I are good friends. And uh, this, this guy had done some movies like, uh, you'd know him, the director, Eli Roth. Oh, Eli Roth. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he called me up and he said, is there any way you could get for Quentin, could you get, send us a clean copy of the Ballad of Harry Warden, because we, we all get together over at Quentin's house every Friday or Saturday night. I can't remember what he said. He said, and we, we what we do is we wind down at the end of the, the DVD when the song plays and everybody starts drinking and singing. And, <laughs> and I said, how strange. He said, oh, yeah, we, we play this all the time and sing along with it. It's such a great song. This was before we did the soundtrack album with Waxworks. Yeah. So I, I I stripped it off my master tapes and I I sent it out to him and uh, I said here guys go nuts you know have fun the film's never trying to be anything other than what it is it's a little film it's an honest film 
and uh, and you feel you can feel it with the actors. You you relate to it. But but how but how strange, right? I mean, it's got to be surreal. Another thing that's happened, uh, which is I didn't expect at all. I mean, there were four prom nights. Okay, so there were three sequels that were done since the original one with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. I did all four of them, and as each one was being done, there was this focus on, well, let's let's try and use as much uh, that made the first one successful. Let's just do that. That's the way producers think. Whatever you did before, do it again because it because it worked. And you know, and I was trying to tell them, well, okay, but it's a different movie. It's a different whole different look to it. And and, and in many ways, I think Prom Night Two was a better movie than the original. Yeah, Hello, Mary Lou. That movie's it's really fantastic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So and, and I had I had an open slate there to work with. You know, there was just there was much more movie. You had Bruce Pittman who knew what he was doing. He was a great director, and there was a script that made sense. And everything just flowed from beginning to end. So so it wasn't nearly the challenge that we had on Prom Night 1. Yeah. Now, having said all that, Prom Night 2 didn't make nearly as much money as Prom Night 1. Right. <laughs> so go figure. <laughs> the only reason I'm even talking about all this is because I, we, we ended up doing soundtracks for all four movies, all four prom nights. And the funny thing is they're all with a different label. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. 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 Prom night two, it's, it's the terror vision out of uh, Savannah, Georgia. And then I got the other one is a, a, a label out of Oklahoma, of all places. They're putting out uh, prom night three, which was called The Last Kiss. Have you seen these all these movies? I have, yeah. Okay, so you know what they're about. And then, of course, the fourth one, which which again has nothing to do with anything prom night. It's uh, done in a monastery, mm-hmm. and uh, priests and all kinds of sacrilegious stuff going on. And, uh, and and again, prom night four, Deliver Us from Evil, had no. There's no Mary Lou Maloney. Yeah. <laughs> she, she, she never just got nothing to do with it. I, I look at back now and I think, well, why is this a prom night? It's very jarring when suddenly Mary Lou is just not there anymore. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there were killings and there was a perverted priest who was murdering people and all this horrible stuff. But it had nothing to do with a prom or Mary Lou Maloney, who was the prom queen who died. And, and and then I and then I you know I started thinking back to okay let's go back to how these films were made. These were made, same producer, right? He had this script that came in that was originally called Deliver Us from Evil, and it was again I, they worked backwards. They could get into this monastery. Somebody said, hey, we can go in there and we shoot all kinds of stuff because it's great and it's dark, and you know imagine the angles of the pictures we can make. Okay, great. Well, let's secure the location. Now let's see if we can come up with a story. Yeah. They work backwards because the biggest uh, problem sometimes is finding a location. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. So so they got this monastery. They got this all lined up and uh, and they shot the film. And then the film is, is put together and they're thinking, okay, well, we got this movie about some killer in a monastery. How are we going to market this thing? So then uh, the brilliant minds said, Let's call it a prom night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll make it prom night four. And we'll get all the fans from prom night one, two, and three who'll go. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> if you were a fan of prom night one, two, or three, you, you'd have to be disappointed because you 
you'd go in there and say, well, where's the prom and where's Mary Lou and where, what's this got to do with prom night? Yeah, and you know, it's so bizarre to me because that happens a lot. That happens a lot where, yeah. you know, people will just sort of slap a property name on something to bring people in as if there's no concern for how disappointed the fans are going to be and the fans are always disappointed. They've done that a lot. They did that with the Cabin Fever franchise. You you go to see Cabin Fever 3, which I don't even think ever came out into a theater. I think it was just video. I don't see the connection b- between that and the, and the first one. And, and there's been so many examples of that, too, in, in other mm-hmm. films. So I would think that the fans, yeah, you're right. They they, they walk out and thinking, got to think. I think that's just been ripped off here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did have one question it's kind of apropos of nothing and i apologize it's, it's not related to no. <laughs> to scoring but <laughs> i uh you just it was back in 2010 you did an interview for terror trap right in that interview you had mentioned that you know when you were a kid you know being a film composer was not like you know the first thing in your mind and when you were a teenager you said you wanted to be a rock star a famous rock star so i was wondering if you could have snapped your fingers and been a member of any band, you know, at that time, what, what band would it have been? Well, it's funny you're asking it that way, because you've asked the question in a way that actually did happen. Oh. When, when, I, when I was a teenager, the big era, okay, the big, big music scene, it wasn't disco, it wasn't, we weren't there yet. It was uh, the whole Peace Love Groovy, Hair, Aquarius, Fifth Dimension, you know, and, and again, this is going back way before you were probably born but <laughs> this was the big this was the big craze it was the the woodstock mm-hmm. smoking dope and and uh, you know all this all this stuff the early beatles were starting to get into uh, there was a rock musical called hair what ended up happening was um i was i don't know why because i was trained as a piano player but i ended up picking up a bass guitar and i learned how to play it so I somehow got the job as being the bass player in the in the rock musical Hair. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I did that show uh, for like a year and a half every night, two matinees on Saturday and Sunday. And oh, God, it was I made a lot of money, but it was hard because I was still in school. How old were you? I was, oh, I think it was 15 or something. 15? Well, were you, I didn't, wow. <laughs> were you touring around with Hair? Like, was it a touring situation? No, 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 no. What, oh, okay. No, no, it was... It, the show was moved into the Royal Alexander Theater, mm. and it stayed there. It played for like 18 months or something. Wow. It was a hit. Yeah. <laughs> so I was there every, for every performance playing the show. What ended up happening, to answer your question, the, <laughs> the, the group Fifth Dimension, and you can look this up, they were big at the time, and a lot of their songs were from the musical Hair, like Aquarius, Let the Sun Shine In, Songs like that, if you look them up, you'll see these were the number one hit songs. And the Fifth Dimension, they were one of the biggest uh, top 40 bands in the country. Yeah. They happened to be in Toronto. It was September-ish. And I remember because I had to go back into school. I was off for the summer and I was going back into into high school in, in September. And this group was playing at a big venue in Toronto that seats 20,000 people. It's, it's, it's a huge uh, event. Yeah. And their bass player got sick. He was hospitalized and was unable to perform. Mm. And the show was like that night. They were doing the sound check, right? <laughs> and their bass player being whisked off in an ambulance. Oh, no. And, and if, you, mm. if you ever research the music for Hair or the 
you'll, you'll know that the bass is probably the most important instrument because almost every song starts off with the bass. So I get this panic call. I'm sitting around in the kitchen with my parents, you know, and I get this call. Uh, can you come down to the CNE, Canadian National Exhibition? Uh, we, we're stuck. We're in a lot of trouble. We found out you're the bass player for Hair, or were the bass player, because I think Hair had just wrapped up. You know the songs. You know the books. You know the tunes. You know. So he said, can you come right down? I said, yeah. Fifth Dimension. I've died and gone to heaven. Oh, that's amazing. They were my favorite group. <laughs> that's the dream, right? <laughs> Well, you started by asking the question, did you have any dreams about playing with anybody? Well, I did, and it came true. Oh, my gosh. That's just amazing. I go back, and I like I'm in seventh heaven. I thought, Christ, I don't believe this. I just played fifth dimension. <laughs> yeah. So on Sunday, I get this phone call from the same dude, right? And he says, uh, look, we're going on a road trip. We got you know, to go to Baltimore, New Orleans, Dallas, uh, Houston. We're playing all these different right across the country everywhere uh it's a six six week road trip and uh our bass player is not gonna basically i don't think he made it you know i think he was basically toast so can you can you do it so i remember having this big discussion with my dad i said look the fifth dimension wants me to go on tour with them for a month and a half and my father says you've got to go to school Late, like Labor Day is Monday, and you start school on, on the Tuesday. How the hell are you going to go to school if you're on the road with this rock group? Yeah. <laughs> so I said, well, good question. Um, well, how about this, Dad? <laughs> what about if, because uh, I'm going to make a lot of money. All right, they were paying big bucks. You can imagine, yeah. you know, a group like this. They didn't pay scale. I said, how about this? I go and do the tour, and then I hire a private tutor yeah. when I get back, and I pay them out of my pocket, and that'll satisfy you. Personally, I didn't give a shit if I went to school <laughs> or not, because that's not what I wanted to do anyway. Right. Yeah, you know, a musician, you know, I, what do I need to know about algebra for? <laughs> how often am I going to need that? So yeah, I, I, I made a deal with my father. I said, I promise you I will get the year at school if I have to pay for it myself, which I will, but I really want to do this and it's an opportunity of a lifetime. And he had the smarts enough to say, yeah, you should do it. Mm. You don't get, you don't get opportunities like this come along very often. And when you do get them, you should take it. No, oh, I'm glad that he was so supportive. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. No, totally supportive all the way. Mm. So that's what happened. Did the show. It was a great, experience i still remember billy cobham the drummer was my roommate and we you know had a lot of great times together and made a lot of great music and jamming with them and going to the parties afterwards and everything but uh, you know i was just a kid i mean i was a teenager and you know i saw all the roadies and the groupies and all the stuff that went on and i said yeah, yeah you know uh, that's not where why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because I love the music and I sort of got the rock musician thing out of my system early. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's living out of a suitcase and, you know, you're on a plane every second day and you're doing sound checks and this hotel room after hotel. They, you know, that's not, the, that, that wasn't for me. I don't want to live like that. Yeah, I think that's another thing. Another thing that tends to be romanticized. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're living it, yeah. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, yeah. And I mean, if you're ever going to do it, do it when you're a kid, because that's when you're 
you know, you're strong enough to do it. Once I got the taste of the film music thing, I said, yeah, you know what? This is where I want to be. Mm-hmm. This is where I think the most creativity is when you have to marry your music to a picture and a drama and a scene. That's so much more creative than just playing the piano on a stage, playing Bach or Beethoven for the 50,000th time. So the film music thing was really, that's I, fa- I fell into that and I thought, now this is where I, I think I want to stay with this. And uh, the rest is history. Well, I know you don't need me to tell you this, but I think you ended up in the right place because you have a true gift. (laughs) You have a true gift for film music. I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with me about all this. This has been great. (laughs) It's my pleasure. And I I, I mean, my daughter, she has a podcast series as well. It's called On a Dark, Cold Night by Kristen Zaza. And when when you first approached me, I called my daughter, or I wrote her, and I said to this person has a, uh, a podcast series. So she checked it out. She said, oh, yeah, this, this looks good. You should do it, Dad. Said, yeah, I intend, <laughs> I intend to do it. I'm going to do it. <laughs> well, please tell her I said thank you for the encouragement. <laughs> yeah, well, she's, she's 32 years old, and she's been working hard on this for years. It's her passion. You know. Yeah. Well, yeah. I notice here it says it's a it's an the ideal podcast for horror lovers with insomnia. So why have I never heard of it before? Because I need to listen to this. <laughs> well, if you if you go to the you go to the website, you'll see there's like hundreds of there's over a hundred episodes that she's concocted, and you, you know you can't obviously listen to all of them, but put on one of them, you'll hear her. She narrates it herself. She's written the music for it. She's written the story, and she's created the whole thing. It's a one-woman show. That's amazing. And if you can stay with it for long enough, it's just creepy enough, but yet it's uh, it's the sound of her voice, I think, that'll really kind of lull you to sleep. Thank you so much for telling me about this. That's cool that she's a composer. I see yep. that. You know, it says there at the top, it says writer, composer, performer. She's following in your footsteps. <laughs> well, she got a grade 10 piano, and she's got a master's degree at the University of Toronto. And she, I mean, she's not stupid. You know? she's, <laughs> She, she's uh, done done very well, but as you probably know, um, in the arts nowadays, it's it's very hard. I mean, oh yeah, and 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 I'd be the first one to to say this that you you young people don't have the opportunities that we had when we were growing up. And it may be for no other reason that there was ne- not nearly as much competition. Oh, absolutely, that's one hundred percent what it is. There's just so many. So many people. <laughs> yeah. If you do what you love and stay with it, it will rise to the top. You will make it because the, yeah, the, 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 the key is to stick with it, the longevity. Or another way to put it, it takes 25 years to be an overnight success. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. God, that's so well said. I want to thank Paul from the bottom of my heart for taking time out of his life to hang out here and share with us, to shed some light on the Curtains production, as well as his experiences in the industry in general. This was such a fucking joy, just getting to sit down and talk with him. And I'm so glad he brought Kristen's podcast to my attention. I've legitimately fallen in love with it since we talked about it. If you're not familiar with it, it's a dark audio drama series featuring over 200 ghost and bedtime stories. I've started listening to them at night as I'm falling asleep and 
they've genuinely helped me sleep better. Her voice is incredible. The writing as well is just, it's it's top notch. And the music and sound design are gorgeous. I can't recommend it enough. If you want to check it out, just go to kristenzaza.com forward slash podcast. Another invisible monster crept in. And though one could not see her, she was loud, horribly loud, in her awful wailing. She lamented, she lamented everything. But I digress. What were we talking about tonight? Oh, curtains. Uh, To anyone out there listening, have you seen Curtains from 1983? Are you a fan? What's your favorite part of the score? Or your favorite Zaza score in general? If you have any thoughts at all you'd like to share on Curtains or Paul or creepy-ass dolls, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on the Slasher app. My username is Final Girl Friday, Instagram at Molly Oblivion, or if you prefer old-school correspondence, you can email me at finalgirlconfessions at gmail.com. Before we wrap up tonight, it's time for this week's Worst Case Scenario. Give me a worst-case scenario and make it grim. In the spirit of curtains, tonight's question is, if you could play the lead in any horror movie, who would you want to play? And the bonus question, would you kill for the part? Kay Scanlon said, oof, this is tough. Give me the lead in Blair Witch Project, but I don't think I would be willing to kill for that role. I'd also take the lead in The Autopsy of Jane Doe. I think those are both great answers. Although I wonder, would you want to play Mike or Josh in Blair Witch? I feel like Mike would be an especially fun character to play. His whole meltdown at the creek must have been, I mean, exhausting, but, but a lot of fun to perform form as well. And uh, any excuse to scream at Heather Donahue. Chris Harrison says, Michael Myers, if we're talking villain, I'd bring some extra height to the role, which I imagine we're talking Nick Castle, Michael, right? Original Michael. There is something about an unusually tall Michael Myers, as much as I didn't care for Rob Zombie's Halloweens. Tyler Maine's Michael still stands out to me as one of the most memorable. And a part of that was his height. Like Tyler Maine is like, what, almost, he's like almost seven feet tall. (laughs) Michael is terrifying enough. Make him almost seven feet tall and you're just, you're it's fucking psychotic. GoGoHead365 said, honestly, probably Chrome Skull. He is fucking badass. After which slasher user Chrome Skull chimed in, you're damn right I am. I have to say, you guys, I still have not seen either of the Lead to Rest movies. And I just learned today that Brian Austin Green is apparently in the second one. You know what? Let him have his last bit of fun before he croaks. But please get the fuck out of my office. I feel like a terrible horror fan. How have I never seen these movies? Ben Tramer 78 just posted a gif of Patrick Bateman. And uh, and Tina Marie over on Instagram also said Bateman. Sure, why not? Honestly, Tina, picturing you in a raincoat, dancing around to Huey Lewis in the news, chopping Jared Leto into bits. It works. Jeff the Nerd says, Ash, all day, every day. But I'm assuming you wouldn't kill Bruce Campbell, right? You wouldn't take him away from the world. No role is worth Bruce Campbell's life. Jeffrey said Hudson in Aliens. I think playing any role in Aliens would have been great. Sturmdrang said, I would never harm Robert Englund. Good man. But I've been told there's a passing resemblance. So, Freddy, if you're on Slasher and you get a chance, I, I recommend heading over to this post and checking out the photo of Sturmdrang that he posted next to a photo of Robert Englund because, yeah... The resemblance is a little uncanny. I think you would wear the makeup very well. You'd make a great Freddy Krueger, you handsome bastard. Wolf Daughter says Samantha from Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. And yes, I would kill for the part with a chainsaw. Jack? Yeah? I'm going to fuck your brains out. I didn't like the sound of that. 
of death says not quite horror, but I would love to be Brendan Fraser in The Mummy. I think that counts as horror. The scarab scene? Are you kidding me? It's not not horror is all I'm saying. Poltergeist OD said, ahem, poltergeist, <laughs> which I maintain I didn't see that coming. Uh, Sumo Poop says Joshua Jackson in Cursed, not the lead role, but he dates Christina Ricci in the film. So, which if we're going the romance route, I'd like to change my answer from Herbert West to Sarah from My Bloody Valentine. Standing two inches away from Paul Kelman circa 1981 while he's declaring his undying love for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that'd be nice. Skid Bladnir, the current champion of Worst Case Scenario, says, I always try to be chaotic good. John Constantine is far too cool for me. Which, by the way, I, I know. I know that we all learned with the release of Sandman that we've been mispronouncing Constantine our entire lives. It's supposed to be pronounced Constantine, but it just, it sounds wrong to me. I don't care how I'm supposed to pronounce it. I'm saying it Constantine. <laughs> Skid goes on to say, I'm easily typecasted as Frank from Return of the Living Dead. Just a guy doing his job. Boom. Extraordinary circumstances. The character figured out he was in a horror movie, and in a genre full of sweaty guys hiding bites under long sleeves, he took himself off the board. That's a hero. Bonus answer, kill the audition not the competition. <laughs> Amen. Gory Rory says, I would have said Mike in Phantasm, but at my age now, I may be leaning more toward Reggie. I would never kill Michael or Reggie. However, I would happily trade James Woods's soul if he has one. <laughs> any excuse, any excuse to throw James Woods under the bus. I can neither confirm nor deny the existence of James Woods's soul, but I think he would make an excellent Reggie. Movie Man said, I could play Seth Gecko in From Dusk Till Dawn, and I'd definitely do Hollywood and all of humanity a favor and kill that D-bag George Clooney. You guys, these answers are getting personal. Tigernet says, Dr. McMichaels in From Beyond. I know she doesn't exactly have a great ending in the story, but she gets to be both smart and foxy. I think that's an awesome answer. Anything, any of Barbara Crampton's roles. You know, she has just gotten some of the best roles. I think, in the history of the genre. Um, I would even settle for the doctor she played in Death House. <laughs> I don't remember that character's name, but yeah, yeah, that would be great. These are the three Satans. We found three prisoners who hold delusions. That one is Satan, one created Satan, and one is the son of Satan. What are the chances of that? The Prenna says, Pinhead's the lead, right? I'd play Pinhead. I'd even shave my beard for the part. That's commitment, and I completely understand why. Stapled Spine Fanzine says, Dracula sucks from 1978. God, I hadn't thought about that movie in such a long time. <laughs> these were all great answers. It occurs to me, though, you know who we never hear from with these worst case scenarios is my editor, Jonathan, who, if you don't know, is not just my editor. He's also an actor and a very talented one. So I want to hear from him. Hey, Jonathan, if you could play the lead in any horror movie, who would you want to play? And would you for the part. Ooh, I feel like I'm invading. <laughs> What's up, Molly? On to the task at hand. The amount of digging I had to do to find what movie I would want, but as soon as I saw it, I knew I wanted to choose it. Willy's Wonderland, Nicolas Cage, doesn't say a word the whole goddamn movie, and he kicks ass like it's a video game. I wouldn't kill for it, though. I like Nicolas Cage. I don't even have a song to sing All I know is la 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 Means I love you 
Thanks so much to everyone for participating. And extra huge thanks to Jonathan. This week, the last couple of weeks actually, have been pure chaos. And he has just been my fucking rock through all of this. Just thank you, Jonathan, for doing what you do. Final Girl Friday is hosted by, you know, me, Molly Oblivion, edited by Jonathan Bradley, and scored by Gory Rory. Big thanks to my creepy janitors over on Patreon, Chad, Chris, and Deuce. Thank you guys so much for your continued support. And welcome, Christian, to the Patreon, our new fog dweller. I, I hope you like it here. I'll be back in two weeks on March 17th, talking about Frightmare, also released in 1983. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sane. If you come across a spooky-looking doll standing up in the middle of the road, maybe try driving around it. And until next time, creep it real. Creep it real.